Section 1 of The Purple Cloud. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nissa Schmidt. The Purple Cloud by Matthew Phipps Scheel. Section 1. Section 1. Here begins the notebook marked 3. The Purple Cloud. Well, the memory seems to be getting rather impaired now, rather weak. What, for instance, was the name of that parson who preached, just before the Boreal set out, about the wickedness of any further attempt to reach the North Pole? I have forgotten. Yet four years ago it was familiar to me as my own name. Things which took place before the voyage seem to be getting a little cloudy in the memory now. I have sat here, in the loggia of this Cornish villa, to write down some sort of account of what has happened. God knows why, since no eye can ever read it. And at the very beginning, I cannot remember the parson's name. He was a strange sort of man, surely, a Scotchman from Ayrshire, big and gaunt, with tawny hair. He used to go about London streets in show and rust-bung clothes a plaid flung from one shoulder. Once I saw him at Holborn, with his rather wild stock, frowning and muttering to himself. He had no sooner come to London, an open chapel, I think in Fetter Lane, than the little room began to be crowded, and when, some years afterwards, he moved to a big establishment in Kensington, all sorts of men, even from America and Australia, flocked to hear the thunderstorms that he talked. Though certainly it was not an age apt to fly into enthusiasms over that species of pulpit prophets and prophecies. But this particular man undoubtedly did wake the strong, dark feelings that sleep in the heart. His eyes were very singular and powerful. His voice from a whisper ran gathering like snowballs and crashed as I have heard the pack-ice in commotion far yonder in the north, while his gestures were as uncouth and gawky as some wild man's of the primitive ages. Well, this man, what was his name? Mackintosh? Mackay? I think, yes, that was it, Mackay. Mackay saw fit to take offense at the new attempt to reach the pole in the Boreal and for three Sundays, when the preparations were nearing completion, stormed against it at Kensington. The excitement of the world with regard to the North Pole had at this date reached a pitch which can only be described as fevered, though that word hardly expresses the strange ecstasy and unrest which prevailed. For the abstract interest which mankind, in mere desire for knowledge, had always felt in this unknown region, was now, suddenly, a thousand and a thousand times intensified by a new, concrete interest, a tremendous money interest. And the new zeal had ceased to be healthy in its tone as the old zeal was, for now the fierce demon Mammon was making his voice heard in this matter. Within the ten years preceding the Boreal expedition, no less than twenty-seven expeditions had set out and failed. 
the secret of this new rage lay in the last will and testament of mr charles p stickney of chicago that king of faddists supposed to be the richest individual who ever lived he just ten years before the boreal undertaking had died bequeathing one hundred and seventy five million dollars to the man of whatever nationality who first reached the pole such was the actual wording of the will the man who first reached and from this loose method of designating the person intended had immediately burst forth a prolonged heat of controversy in europe and america as to whether or no the testator meant the chief of the first expedition which reached but it was finally decided on the highest legal authority that in any case the actual wording of the document held good and that it was the individual whatever his station in the expedition whose foot first reached the ninetieth degree of north latitude who would have title to the fortune at all events the public ferment had risen as i say to a pitch of positive fever and as to the boreal in particular the daily progress of her preparations was minutely discussed in the newspapers every one was an authority on her fitting and she was in every mouth a bet a hope a jest or a sneer for now at last it was felt that success was probable so this mackay had an acutely interested audience if a somewhat startled and a somewhat cynical one a truly lion-hearted man this must have been after all to dare proclaim a point of view so at variance with the spirit of his age one against four hundred millions they bent one way he the opposite saying that they were wrong all wrong people used to call him john the baptist redivivus and without doubt he did suggest something of that sort i suppose that at the time when he had the face to denounce the boreal there was not a sovereign on any throne in europe who but for shame would have been glad of a subordinate post on board on the third sunday night of his denunciation i was there in that kensington chapel and i heard him and the wild talk he talked he seemed like a man delirious with inspiration the people sat quite spellbound while mackay's prophesying voice ranged up and down through all the modulations of thunder from the hurrying mutter to the reverberant shock and climax and those who came to scoff remained to wonder put simply what he said was this that there was undoubtedly some sort of fate or doom connected with the poles of the earth in reference to the human race that man's continued failure in spite of continual efforts to reach them abundantly and superabundantly proved this and that this failure constituted a lesson and a warning which the race disregarded at its peril the north pole he said was not so very far away and the difficulties in the way of reaching it were not on the face of them so very great human ingenuity had achieved a thousand things a thousand times more difficult yet in spite of over half a dozen well-planned efforts in the nineteenth century and thirty-one in the twentieth man had never reached always he had been balked balked by some seeming chance 
some restraining hand and herein lay the lesson herein the warning wonderfully really wonderfully like the tree of knowledge in eden he said was that pole all the rest of the earth lying open and offered to man but that persistently veiled and forbidden it was as when a father lays a hand upon his son with not here my child wheresoever you will but not here but human beings he said were free agents with power to stop their ears and turn a callous consciousness to the whispers and warning indications of heaven and he believed he said that the time was now come when man would find it absolutely in his power to stand on that ninetieth of latitude and plant an impious right foot on the head of the earth just as it had been given into the absolute power of adam to stretch an impious right hand and pluck of the fruit of knowledge but said he his voice now pealing into one long proclamation of awful augury just as the abuse of that power had been followed in the one case by catastrophe swift and universal so in the other he warned the entire race to look out thenceforth for nothing from god but a lowering sky and thundery weather the man's frantic earnestness authoritative voice and savage gestures could not but have their effect upon all as for me i declare i sat as though a messenger from heaven addressed me but i believed that i had not yet reached home when the whole impression of the discourse had passed from me like a water from a duck's back the prophet in the twentieth century was not a success john baptist himself camel skin and all would have met with only tolerant shrugs i dismissed mackay from my mind with the thought he is behind his age, I suppose. But haven't I thought differently of Mackay since? My God. Three weeks, it was about that, before that Sunday night discourse, I was visited by Clark, the chief of the coming expedition. A mere visit of friendship. I had then been established about a year at number two Harley Street, and though under twenty-five, had i suppose as elite a practice as any doctor in europe elite but small i was able to maintain my state and move among the great but now and again i would feel the secret pinch of moneylessness just about that time in fact i was only saved from considerable embarrassment by the success of my book applications of science to the arts in the course of conversation that afternoon Clark said to me in his light, haphazard way, Do you know what I dreamed about you last night, Adam Jeffson? I dreamed that you were with us on the expedition. I think you must have seen my start. On the same night, I had myself dreamed the same thing. But not a word said I about it now. There was a stammer in my tongue when I answered, Who? I? On the expedition? I would not go if I were asked. Oh, you would. I wouldn't. You forget that I'm about to be married. Well, we need not discuss the point, as Peters is not going to die, said he. Still, if anything did happen to him, you know, it is you I should come straight to, Adam Jeffson. Clark, you jest, I said. I know really very little of astronomy or magnetic phenomena. Besides, I am about to be married. 
But what about your botany, my friend? There's what we would be wanting from you. And as for nautical astronomy, huh, a man of your scientific habit would pick up all that in no time. You discuss the matter as gravely as though it were a possibility, Clark, I said, smiling. Such a thought would never enter my head. There is, first of all, my fiance. Ah, the all-important countess, eh? Well, but she, as far as I know the lady, would be the first to force you to go. The chance of stamping one's foot on the North Pole does not occur to a man every day, my son. Do talk of something else, I said. There is Peter's. Well, of course there is Peter's. But believe me, the dream I had was so clear. Let me alone with your dreams and your poles, I laughed. Yes, I remember. I pretended to laugh loud. But my secret heart knew, even then, that one of those crises was occurring in my life which, from my youth, has made it the most extraordinary which any creature of earth ever lived. And I knew that this was so, firstly, because of the two dreams, and secondly, because when Clark was gone, and I was drawing on my gloves to go see my fiancé, I heard distinctly the old two voices talk within me. And one said, Go not to see her now. The other, Yes, go, go. The two voices of my life. An ordinary person reading my words would undoubtedly imagine that I mean only two ordinary, contradictory impulses, or else that I rave. For what modern man could comprehend how real-seeming were those voices, how loud, and how ever and again I heard them contend within me, with a nearness nearer than breathing, as it says in the poem, and closer than hands and feet. About the age of seven it happened first to me. I was playing one summer evening in a pinewood of my father's. Half a mile away was a quarry cliff, and as I played, it suddenly seemed as if someone said to me inside of me just take a walk toward the cliff and as if someone else said don't go that way at all mere whispers then which gradually as i grew up seemed to swell into cries of wrathful contention i did go toward the cliff it was steep thirty feet high and i fell some weeks later on recovering speech i told my astonished mother that Someone had pushed me over the edge, and that someone else had caught me at the bottom. One night, soon after my eleventh birthday, lying in bed, the thought struck me that my life must be of great importance to something or things which I could not see, that two powers which hated each other must be continually after me, one wishing for some reason to kill me, and the other for some reason to keep me alive, one wishing me to do so-and-so, and the other to do the opposite, that I was not a boy like other boys, but a creature separate, special, marked for something. Already I had notions, touches of mood, passing instincts, as occult and primitive, I verily believe, as those of the first man that stepped so that such biblical expressions as the lord spake to so-and-so saying have hardly ever suggested any question in my mind as to how the voice was heard i did not find it so very difficult to comprehend that originally men had more ears than two 
nor should have been surprised to know that i in these latter days more or less resembled those primeval ones but not a creature except perhaps my mother has ever dreamed me what i here state that i was i seem the ordinary youth of my time bowing my varsity eight cramming for exams dawdling in clubs when i had to decide as to a profession who could have suspected the conflict that transacted itself in my soul while my brain was indifferent to the matter that agony of strife with which the brawling voices shouted the one be a scientist a doctor and the other be a lawyer an engineer an artist be anything but a doctor a doctor i became and went to what had grown into the greatest of medical schools cambridge and there it was that i came across a man named scotland who had a rather odd view of the world he had rooms i remember in the new court at trinity and a set of us were generally there he was always talking about certain black and white powers till it became absurd and the men used to call him black and white mystery man because one day when someone said something about the black mystery of the universe scotland interrupted him with the words the black and white mystery quite well i remember scotland now the sweetest gentle soul he was with a passion for cats and sappho and the anthology very short in stature with a roman nose continually making the effort to keep his neck straight and draw his paunchin he used to say that the universe was being frantically contended for by two powers a white and a black that the white was the stronger but did not find the conditions on our particular planet very favorable to its success that he had got the best of it up to the middle ages in europe but since then had been slowly and stubbornly giving way before the black and that finally the black would win not everywhere perhaps but here and would carry off if no other earth at least this month for his prize this was scotland's doctrine which he never tired of repeating and while others heard him with mere toleration little could they divine with what agony of inward interest i cynically smiling there drank in his words most profound most profound was the impression they made upon me End of section one.